when there's blood in the streets, uh, lift up, check under the carpet, many try but few become, master of the mark market. Well, Ben Griffiths, thanks very much for coming on Masters of the Market. We were lucky enough to have you on Talkie Book on Tuesday, so really pleased that you were able to butter up again for the double. Great. Chris, great to be here. I thought maybe you could start by telling us uh, a little bit about Eli Griffiths and, and your uh, investment philosophy there, and then we're going to get into uh, a bit of a special on managing crisis in the stock market. Great. Happy to. Um, well, Eli Griffiths Group was founded in 2003. Brian, Eli and myself had um, just finished... Uh, a year or so at BT, and before that, a long period of time at ING. And um, I had always been hankering to do my own thing, to try my hand at, at managing a pot of money. Um, I could honestly say hand on heart that my time at, at ING, investment management, gave me a great feeling um, and developed a great aptitude for, for money management and the principles and, and market respect. Um, and, 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 and the disciplines that go with managing money, I, I figured I was, I thought I was ready to go. We launched in 2003, and as uh, many of the viewers will remember, that was year three of the unfolding um, dot-com crisis, which had you know, climaxed in March 2000 and was going into its third year of misery. Um, and everyone said, you're crazy, um, launching a business uh, this time. Don't you know the market's going down further? Well, what I did know was that markets tend to move in threes and fives. That's the natural rhythm of the market. Um, we were three years down. Um, that for me um, was a green light. Uh, so Brian and I got together and um, wrote a business plan, um, hung out the shingle. Ely Griffiths Group was born. And we've since that time amassed about $1.5 billion of funds under management. Um, a lot of that money from retail sources, a lot from our institutional friends, supporters. And we've set about specialising in small companies and emerging companies or microcaps, as they're often known. That's the, the niche that I thought we had and the niche that, we, um, that we've been able to, I guess, successfully manage. And so you mentioned Eli Griffiths has been around since 2003. As we sit here today, we're in the midst of a stock market crash uh, at the hands of coronavirus and now a, a plunging oil price in quite a historic sort of uh, oil price decline. You've actually been around markets uh, before the 1987 crash and so I guess this is what well, we're probably the fourth major crash since you've been uh, in investment landscape well, I'll let you talk yeah. talk through that but maybe if you could talk through uh, or if we could start with the 1987 crash what you were doing then and uh, what were some of your learnings from from that experience yeah well there's, there's actually four more more than four crises that I've been engaged with they're all different yeah but Chris if I've learned one thing is the playbook's the same Okay, it's, um, it's all about cash. It's about getting cash during the crisis. It's sitting on cash and it's deploying your money carefully. But we'll get to that a yeah. bit later. Um, but October 87, yeah, I'd, I'd started my first year full-time at um, Melbourne-based, uh, but I was working in the Sydney office of Roach Tilly Grison Company. And I was a trading floor operator. And my job was to basically fill, fill the orders on the trading floor of the old open-out price system, which of course has been gone for a while. Um, it was actually the day that they launched seats on the, on the, on the, on the day of the, the crash on, on a couple of stocks. So the first bit of electronic trading started. But I was in the trading floor at the time there, and I figured I was somewhat um, rejoicing, saying that I've had my financial crisis That's in my, for my career. I can now pursue a career of markets that rally, um, forever bull markets, um, stable stock prices, and, and so on. 
But the upheaval that was around 87 was extraordinary. Um, and, um, and there were learnings. And one learning that I look back at now and, and, uh, and realize it was a crucial bit of information was you often hear the expression, no one rings a bell at the top or the bottom. Um, and that's not quite right. Um, at, at some major turning points, I've heard the bell ring. And we've been able to, and in, in recent times, do something about that. But back at 87, a famous client, who I probably shouldn't identify, probably Rice, <laughs> rang through. And uh, at the absolute depth, the nadir of the market meltdown, he'd rung through and was selling 100,000 BHP, 100,000 NAB. He rang, rang all these orders through. And the, the guy who I work with said, Stan, it's too late. Mate, you should have been doing this a week ago. It's, it's too late to sell these stocks, right? The, the corrections happened. And he said, just sell these stocks. And the, and the fellow put the phone down. And he turned around to me and shook his head and said, you want to know what the bell sounds like? That is the bell ringing, right? Mark my words, this is the low. When you get panic selling like that, when the, you can't reason with them, it's, it's irrational, it's too late, it's emotional. And I heard the bell ring. And... and um, and so that was 87. And that was 20% in one day, yes, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, we've just had 7% in the States overnight, which Correct. feels really stressful yeah. as an everyday investor. 20% must have just felt... That no, was brutal. Like it was out of this world. It was brutal. And there's not a buyer for any stock for the first hour of trading. Yeah. Everything legs down long, further than 20%. Um, good quality names will be down 25 to 30, but they finish the day down 20. Yeah. Um, and the rough end of the market, the really small... Speculatives, penny dreadfuls, they they can they can be down eighty percent. Yeah. They can disappear that day. They mm. can never come back. So you can you can have some extraordinary volatility. But yep, twenty percent down. And um and I, I guess what you didn't have so much of then, but you have a lot of today is leverage mm. in the market. Back then most people played with what they had. They had their kitty and that's what they lost. Um there was some leverage in the Australian market, but nowhere near to the degree it is today. There's that saying in gold markets, time to buy gold is before they launch the missiles. And I guess the same into a crisis, the time to sell is before it crashes. Once Absolutely. it crashes, it, it's just, it's too late. It's the time to, to bunker down yeah. and come up with a plan on how you, you're going to get through. I think there's two things what the market didn't have there. You mentioned leverage and also the popularity of index investing, where investing uh, is largely governed by the size of the company and, and momentum as opposed to economic fundamentals. What influence do you think index investing is going to have on this crisis as markets start to cascade down? Yeah, well, I've been, I guess, looking at the last couple of nights of Wall Street's performance. I've been waiting to hear the stories of the ETFs that essentially trade down um, and, and, uh, and, and in fact can't liquidate the underlying shareholdings fast enough. Yeah. So you get the constituent members of the ETF down 7%, but the ETF itself down 25%. I've been waiting for that sort of situation. Um, so we'll, I think we are going to see that that sort of phenomena. We haven't as yet seen it or I haven't read about it happening in the US. Um, I think what it does is it, 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 um, when you've got that sort of um, program-based um, investing, um, then you get, um, you get overreach. You get markets that will probably oversell too far because they're under, under a particular program that they just need to liquidate. So you'll get, I think, the extremities of the market will move, um, you know, will move probably further downwards than they should. Much the same way as perhaps, and arguably, the market moved a long way further northwards than it should have, given the fact there was index buying that just had to get bought by stock every day. So that's just added a new dimension 
to the market, the whole indexing phenomenon, and they've had a good time of it in recent recent years. Um, whereas active managers have battled somewhat. Um, but I'm a firm believer, and I have to be, I've, I've got a reputation running on it, we've set a business up built around it, that active management is actually what stock investment is all about over time, okay? It, it is using the collective knowledge of your team, your experience, your investment process, with some technical and macro overlays. It's all about setting a portfolio that's not good for the next month or so, it's good for five to 10 years. That's what makes a good manager that's where active management shines. Um, ETF investing is, is convenient. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to sell to people. Um, um, index investing, much the same. It's, it's convenient, it's, it's low cost. Um, I, I get that. Is it a sign of the times where people want to go now, they want to type something into Google and be told an answer? Has index investing got some characteristics of that where someone else knows better, they can just tell me, as opposed to actually doing some work yourself, thinking through who's going to be the best active manager around? I think that's right. Warren Buffett sums it up. He said, it's a, it's a weird world now where we're investing in terms of size rather than quality. You know, we're investing in, in liquid vehicles rather than investing in quality. Mm. Um, and he's right, it is. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird feature of the market. But Chris, there's a generation of investors that have been schooled on buying low-cost ETFs mm. and index products. They haven't undergone the education of um, actually Putting together a, a, a portfolio was about building sensible, value-adding, value um, uh, discounted, attractive stocks with good fundamentals. There's an education process that's I think gone, think has gone wanting, um, and that's and that's sort of what underpins value investing. Um, there's a there's an audience that just don't don't have those skills and haven't got that programming. So I think no doubt about it, this world that we're in has encouraged uh, um, the phenomenon you're talking about. Um, you don't know the stocks, you just know the code and you just um, you just buy them on the basis of that uh, for exposure. You know, I, it's very foreign to how, how I've always thought about markets. And thankfully, there's a large part of the market that still remains true to the sort of principles I'm talking about, um, which over time are going to be proven to be you know, smart investing, rational investing. Now, a lot of people will say that how can coronavirus have caused so much damage to financial markets? Um, but in a sense, coronavirus was the, the straw that broke the camel's back to financial markets. There's been a lot of things that have put them under stress or put them under at risk, particularly around the amount of debt in the system. I'm just going to walk through what some of those things are and what, what the bubble was that coronavirus in effect pricked as opposed to coronavirus being the, the pure cause of all this, uh, this financial destruction we're currently witnessing. Sure. I mean, we had a market we had a global stock market, and I guess a lot of these comments really centre around the United States. That's the that's, yeah. that's the primary um, the primary market we all reference when we talk about market health. And markets had, it's fair to say, had overreached. Um, we had a very ordinary um, earnings period last year in the United States, flat earnings basically. You're paying 18 times for no earnings growth. That's pretty underwhelming. Uh, this year, the expectations were we'd get seven or eight percent earnings growth. There was a there was a slightly better outlook. But markets had gotten ahead of themselves, no doubt about it. The high concentration amongst the FANG stocks, the, the Facebooks and, and, uh, and Netflixes, and Amazons of this world, that high concentration had, had, um, had seen the market overreach, in my opinion. So the market, I never bought the story that the market was especially overvalued. Yeah. It was not cheap. The US stock market was above long-term averages. The average P of the US stock market is about 14 and a half. 
So we were trading 16 and a half, 17 times. So we weren't especially expensive. If I, if I cast my eye back to 2000, the US PE was about 28 times. Price to books were three and a half times. So we had a- And interest rates were a lot higher in 2000. Interest rates were, were quite a deal higher as well. So what we had, what we've had here is um, in, 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 the, in the US stock market, we've had a situation of probably stretched valuations, but not, but not nosebleed. We've had good valuations relative to bonds, the equity risk premium of the US stock market and most other equity markets was heavily in favor of equities. But we had a market that I think was over-owned. We had a market that had overreached. We had a market that was looking for a correction. And I always make a point with my team at work, and I say to them, remember fellas, it's not valuation that brings markets down. It is normally, it's a left field event or a, or a black swan event that actually begins it. The extent to which the market is destroyed will be governed by how excessively valued it was. This market, in my thinking, was not excessively valued. It was overpriced, but not excessively so. So coronavirus was the catalyst, okay? Um, and it's bought up, and it was slow to take hold, let's face it. The, as we sit here today, the markets are going through their 12th night of correction. Um, we've been talking about coronavirus since December. We've had updates from from, from Apple and, 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 and Microsoft through January saying, yeah, we're seeing dislocation, we're doing our best, it is having an impact, and the market steps straight through it. Um, so we've had warning shots, we've had indications. I think it was really when coronavirus landed in California, when coronavirus landed in Northern Italy and presented itself in Iran, that investors suddenly decided to take it more seriously. Add a bit of leverage, as you mentioned in your opening remarks, add a bit of overboughtness to the equation, and the line of least resistance is down. So 12 hard nights down. Um, I, I like to talk to people about markets and talk to brokers about markets. I haven't seen, I hadn't seen the whites of people's eyes until the last 24 hours where literally, I look at your eyes and you've reasonably relaxed here, but um, I know looking, to, looking at a fund manager or an analyst or a broker who, who's under genuine uh, market stress and the eyes well up and you can see it in their face. Uh, I've only started seeing it in the last 24, maybe 48 hours, and that's been reflected in price action. So, so we're seeing a, a genuine correction. How deep does it go? Look, I, I, I don't know. Markets normally, they, they need to exhaust themselves before they collapse. Mm. We haven't had much of an exhaustion process. We were at record highs uh, two weeks ago. You know, we're 12 days into a correction. I'm just not sure we've done enough to justify um, the big, the big meltdown. We've had a, we've had a sizable correction, no doubt about it. Um, I think we need to consolidate. The market needs to do more exhaustion um, uh, price action um, to then set up for a big fall. Is would be my thinking. But it is late in the economic cycle. There's no getting away from that either. We're 11 years in, give or take. And so investors, retail investors in particular, like to hang on to you know small sayings to try and guide them or give them comfort, and they often are in conflict with one another. So right now you've got don't catch a falling knife yeah. and you've got buy when there's blood in the streets, the famous, well, I think it was Rockefeller, but Buffett obviously says it as well. Yeah. Um, right now, it probably doesn't feel like there's quite enough blood in the streets to start buying again. Is that how you're looking at it more broadly? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I would, um, I would advocate um, when markets start to, start to correct that you need to give it time. Uh, as, as much as the... The destination in a bull market takes longer to arrive at when you've got a share price um, and a stock performance. It, the, the ultimate destination takes a while to get to. The same happens in a, in a correcting market. It takes time. And so the first instinct is to, is to, is to buy these stocks that were much higher a week or two, week or two weeks ago. Um, one needs to, 
spend the money slowly. And if you had a dollar, you're probably placing a 25 cent bet right now with what we've seen. Um, so you need to be patient with, with how you time your return to the market or your entry. Um, and you also need to ensure that you're buying quality and um, because quality will bounce back fastest. Quality will be the, will be the style of stock that gets bought back out. Um, stocks of spurious fundamentals and questionable management, um, those stocks will languish and fail to get a bid. So yes, it looks like there's a, there's a good buy point at hand um, and, and we're doing quite a bit of that, um, I will say. We've been fortunate, Illy Griffiths Group, to have built up somewhat of a cash hoard over the last month or two. And we are spending that sort of 25 cents on the dollar. We're, we're, we're placing some bets carefully, cognizant of the fact that we might not be out of the woods just yet. And is it when you talk of quality, you can have high quality growth companies and you can have high quality value companies. Is it fair when you get out of a, a crisis and a, a real drop in share prices that it's often those value stocks that are the ones that come out first because they've got tangible earnings that people can hold on to as opposed to potentially high quality growth stories, which don't seem as attractive when the proverbial shit hits the fan? Well, I mean, look, as long as it's high quality, um, high quality value might be a construction materials business that's yeah. well managed with a, with a longstanding franchise. Um, um, it, it might be Adelaide Brighton, for instance. Um, at the same time, high quality growth story might be La Visa, yeah. um, which has a multiple, um, probably three times the multiple of Adelaide Brighton cement. But you don't have a bias towards those value stocks post-crisis, potentially? No, yeah. not necessarily. We'll look at every stock on its merit. Yeah. And, and, and really for us, it's, okay, value by PE ratio, perhaps is one way of looking at it. What is the, what's the commensurate earnings growth, the three-year earnings growth I'm getting for that, for that, uh, for that multiple? And if, if, it's a, if it's a lowly stock with a low single-digit PE, I'll need to be satisfied that the earnings trajectory is deliverable and, and plausible. Um, and it might be a, a growth stock where I am convinced it will do 15 to 20% EPS growth for the next three years. And I'm happy to pay a stock that doesn't fit the value category. It's, it still seems to be expensive. You know, markets come back and it's 28 times, not 35 times. So I try not to get too dissuaded by that. I don't necessarily want to buy value if value won't, won't have commensurate growth behind it. It's that sort of principle. And so I'm, I'm uh, during the GFC, I was investing. I was a part-time moronic investor that had margin loans. Was, I still remember getting margin called in New York, which is a horrible experience. Yeah. I'm now a full-time investor and still moronic, but slightly less moronic than I was back then. But I've been surprised that during times like this, everything's correlated. Everything drops. doesn't matter if you're, even if you're a listed gold company and potentially exposed to the high, you know, Australian dollar gold price in particular, you're still going to drop because people need that liquidity as they're getting margin called uh, elsewhere. Are you looking for companies that shouldn't be as correlated this fall as other companies that have dropped just as swiftly as potentially ones to keep an eye on in the next six to 12 months? Look, not targeting businesses like that, but certainly aware of stocks that, 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 have, um, that haven't, haven't retraced as far as we'd have liked. And that, therein lies a message there as well, that, that stocks that you would have thought would have undergone a far deeper and mm. more, a more punishing correction haven't done so. Um, now that, that, that itself tells you something. It tells you that the underlying fundamentals people believe in, uh, that there are latent buyers ready to, ready to target that stock. So if anything, that can be quite reassuring when you get a stock that hasn't fallen as far as the broader market. Um, that tends to tell you there's a good register behind that company. Um, and that'll warrant investigation from us why that stock hasn't been too knocked around. A good example in the current market sell-off is Elders, 
mm. the agricultural group, where um, you know agriculture, Australian agriculture appears to have had a reasonable shot in the arm with, with the strong rainfalls of late and and the cattle price recovering and and and, and land prices are strong. That's an example of during this rout, um, that stock has been under some pressure, but but has been a, an extraordinary outperform in a relative sense. The underlying fund dumps um, are very supportive. Perhaps it reflects a register that's under owns it, um, or it reflects owners that are happy to hold it and and not looking to relinquish stock. So I think there's a message in in how stocks behave, and it tells you as much about the story as about the ownership structure and who's behind it and how emotive they are or not emotive, as the case may be. We do use that as a as a as a um, as a final tick in the box, saying look how good the stocks performed. It's it, it's found support where it should have found the support on the chart. It's rebounded on good volume. There are buyers for this name. We do try and deconstruct why that stock has behaved the way it has. We do a lot of that stuff. And you're very experienced, having extensive history in small caps, but you also had a period of your career in the precious metals industry. What were you doing there? And, and perhaps give us your, your overall view on, on the gold market. Sure. Well, I did. Um, we, we touched on, we began our conversation about the 1987 crash and the aftermath there. and Share markets were almost turned into like a ghost town um, post-87. And the markets had a far smaller audience. They didn't capture as many people. There wasn't as many eyeballs or, or checkbooks chasing the Australian share market. After that, after that route, um, it was tough. I, 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 like many, many others lost their job. Well, I worked for a, a small broker at that point in time that went out of business. And the return path to stockbroking was tough and there was weren't opportunities. I was presented with an opportunity to join Mace Westpac, which is a gold bullion bank. We were gold traders, and we also did hedging and gold loans um, for, for Australian gold mining companies. And I said, well, I need to do something. I was on the back of a furniture truck, moving furniture for six months. And I thought that, that will do fine. I'm gonna learn something about the gold business. And so I joined that firm, um, worked for them for almost three years. And within there, I learned a couple of things. Um, you'd be pleased to hear. Um, I learned about the Australian mining industry. I learned about hedging, um, structuring gold forward products and gold loans and gold borrowing. I learned about how the gold market worked. And I learned a lot about trading. I learned um, how markets behave, um, uh, the importance of technical levels, the importance of indicators, and just the importance of, of, of classic deep free markets that are traded by, by so many different players. And so I had first-hand experience of the trading side and, and I got a great appreciation for, for, for trading commodities on the back of that. And I got a, a great appreciation for gold and the gold industry and, and how professional it's conducted. So it was a great learning for me. And, um, and to this day, still apply some of the principles of, of, that I learned there. Um, it's no coincidence. And it's, it's as much um, myself as it is our gold analyst at Illy Griffiths Group that we have a reasonable position in gold and we, are, we, we, we eagerly follow a number of stories. Um, we've been bulls as a house on the A dollar gold, the Australian dollar gold price, which has been um, going up for a number of years. Um, the, the Australian gold industry has enjoyed somewhat of a renaissance probably in the last decade. Um, and um, there have been a number of companies, Northern Star, Evolution, Saracen Minerals. These businesses have been literally um, born from not very much very astute acquisitions, very clever managers, and then growing production ounces and growing production ounces profitably. 
and we've been on literally all of those names at some point. So underlying our view is a bullish $8 gold price and of late in the last six months, we've become even more bullish on the underlying US dollar gold price, which has been rallying nicely. And we think we'll continue to rally as much about negative real interest rates, which are a driver for the gold price, as it is for the US dollar, which we think might be going through a topping out process. So gold to us in A dollars feels, has felt great and will continue to perform well. In US dollars, it feels really good. Um, but I think the point you were, you were about to make before I launched forth was that even though you've got gold stocks in a market meltdown, gold stocks will still fall foul of a market meltdown because they're allowed to trade as a gold proxy for a day or so. Then they, then they, they morph back into an equity again and they get sold because they've outperformed. So you will get this sort of sawtooth pattern with gold stocks where they'll have a great night, they'll outperform, then they'll be down 8%. And then the next night they'll, they'll become defensive again because gold's up strongly. So they have a, a more um, stop-start uh, sell-off traditionally, whereas, um, whereas your, your standard stock just gets sold. And so, is that linked to more that feeling of either panic or needing to get liquidity than it is to fundamentals, obviously? It's, 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 that, it's that dreaded liquidity hunt, which no stock is safe in the early stages of a sell-down. Yes. But they must come back quicker than some of those growth stuff. If the, if the gold backdrop remains sound, yeah. then they will come back very quickly. And so do you look at, I mean, the, the natural progression from this, from the central banks around the world, you'd expect the US will go to zero interest rates, perhaps even at their next mm. meeting later this month. Do you look at that as continuing to be ultra bullish for the gold price? And have you set a sort of range of where you think the gold price could potentially get to? Well, I mean, the principal driver of gold is real interest rates rather than nominal rates. And, and the point is that real interest rates in the US went negative the other day, negative 50 basis points for the, uh, the real 10-year bond. That's the trigger, is that we're in negative real rates. It's real interest rates that drive gold price rather than nominal. So we're in that domain now. Um, so I, I, I see us remaining there for, for, for quite a period of time, uh, given the vagaries and the uncertainties of the environment. That is That is fuel for the, for the gold price. I also see, as I mentioned before, the US dollar being softer. Um, perhaps it's done its best work. Um, and normally in crisis, the US dollar is a place where investors head to. It's a safe yeah. haven. Uh, the last couple of days, we've seen investors head to the yen. So the, 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 the US dollar has been sold and money's gone into the yen. Uh, money's gone into gold. Um, Money hasn't come into the Aussie dollar yet, no. but um, <laughs> but the Aussie dollar hasn't been so bad though, I must say. Yeah. The Aussie dollar hasn't fallen apart. It hasn't been great either, yeah. the same thing. So I think it's the US dollar and, and real interest rates, the trajectory of real interest rates that you need to be focused on. And both of those are working nicely in favor of gold. Where does it go? We go back to the old highs back in 2011. So we head back to the old highs. Um, then you'd expect a lot of you know, as you do at old highs, you get turbulence. You get um, sellers turning up. Well, when they last turned up, they're back again, but you get new buyers. So I think the return to the old highs is inevitable. Um, and, and then once you get back to the old highs, well, people people almost certainly want to see, well, let's see how far we can push it. So I think that's all to play out. And I think gold stocks will be a relative outperformer. They'll have bad nights, as I've mentioned. Um, we've still got a number of exciting gold stocks. 
We've got a couple of smaller ones we're buying, so I can't share them with you, Chris. <laughs> yeah, no, that's um, fair enough. But I will, perhaps when I come back next time. Once you're substantial, we'll be able to see. Once you're substantial, <laughs> correct. I'll, I'll ship an email through. So, so look, I think the outlook for, for gold stocks is, is, is positive in this environment. And what about the Australian residential property market? It's obviously really highly valued when you compare it to other markets around the world, but we've got dropping interest rates. Uh, and we've got a government hell-bent on supporting it. How are you sort of viewing the Australian property market through this cycle? That's, great. that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting point. I, the property market will live and die on the strength of the job market. And, if, and if, if the economic effects and the contagion of coronavirus starts to impact on consumer confidence, which, by the way, consumer confidence was already ebbing mm. into, into the outbreak and the proliferation of coronavirus. If that continues to manifest itself in consumers that are becoming concerned about things, um, especially about their jobs, then the property market will struggle. Um, I've been quite surprised in the last two weekends of clearance rates, auction clearance rates, both in Melbourne and Sydney have been at sort of 80% level. They've been quite buoyant. So people aren't that worried. They, they haven't reacted to shortages of toilet paper at, um, at, at IGA. Um, or what's going on with coronavirus? It seems big ticket item. The property, the investment property, they seem to be um, seem to be okay with that. Do you think it's a different market? Like if you're perhaps buying a property in the less than a million dollar range, or I don't know, maybe it's one and a half. You may be less exposed to the, the stock market potentially. And if you're above that, you've perhaps got a much greater exposure. And perhaps those two different markets will respond differently to this correction. Possibly. Look, I think ultimately the real driver is it's, it's in part confidence and it's also the cost of money is, yeah. makes it very attractive. Banks have been difficult with their lending requirements. They've been restrictive, made it hard. I hear anecdotally that the, the, pro, the, the process of getting a loan and, and having a loan approved and actually transacting is becoming a little easier than it was. So I think perhaps there's been some freeing up of um, funding. The, the, the attraction, the relative attraction of, um, of, of interest rates at current levels. And when I first bought my apartment in 93, um, I was paying, I think, 185 to 19% for my home loan. Could have even spiked to 20%. Um, so I think today's rates are, um, are extraordinarily accommodative for, 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 for buyers. So I think, um, look, I think it really comes down to cost of money and confidence, and confidence is still, is still okay. And I think um, until we see the job market start to deteriorate and corporates start laying off, and we saw Qantas this morning come out and announce that they're slashing executive salaries. That's, seen, that's probably the beginning of what we don't want to see is, is like corporate privation, a period of austerity where corporates do start to wind back on discretionary expenditures, start winding back on headcount, salary sacrifice and, and all sorts of things. That'll bring in a different dimension that will really um, undermine consumer discretionary activity and confidence. We don't want to see that. And the other day I had a, I had a cup of coffee with a great economist, Michael Knox from, from Morgans. And I said to him, have you, have you, you've been around even longer than I have. Have you seen anything like this? What do you think is going to play out? And he said, I've been trying to find a, a, an analog for what we're going through now with coronavirus. And he said, I think it's the Asian crisis in 1997. And back then what happened was obviously Asian economies were in trouble. There was a panic. Asian stock markets had sold off. And the Japanese share market was not spared. Japan was our major trading partner. We sold iron ore and coal en masse to Japan. And the concern was, we're not going to sell any more iron ore. The steel mills are stopping. We won't need any more thermal coal. 
um, we're in trouble here. And there was a panic that descended on the Australian economy about our major customers now out of business or shutting, shutting down. And what ended up happening that year was um, with that, and that was front page of the papers, that was the panic as well, not dissimilar to what we're seeing now. What ended up happening in 1997 was the government swung into action and they announced stimulus. They announced cash drops. There was, there was some accommodation in, 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 in the tax regime. The RBA stood alongside the government and said, we'll do what it takes to ensure the Australian economy doesn't slide into recession. And that's what happened. We, we, we averted recession. And so Michael and I were talking yesterday about it and said, do not discount a rerun of what happened in 97, where all hope looks, lo looks lost. We looks like we're in a tough spot with a quick um, affirmative action from government. And we've just seen that overnight with Frydenberg and, and, um, and, uh, and, and Morrison swinging to action, making some, some, some announcements. We might be as bad off as, as the scaremongers and the media would have us believe. So we'll see. I thought there was an interesting dimension. No one's mentioned the 97 analogue to me mm. and, I, and it made sense that maybe that's, maybe that's a scenario we go through which will protect the property market mm. um, and protect consumers and, uh, and, and we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll be okay. When you look at, say, someone like Winston Churchill, who's regarded as a great leader, particularly in war times, perhaps out of war wasn't as talented a, a leader. You would have worked over with lots of different portfolio managers and fund managers in your career. Are there some fund managers that seem particularly skilled during a crisis versus during periods where uh, you know, things are rosy or, or more bullish? And, and if so, what are some of the characteristics they have? Or, or is it just a good fund manager is a good fund manager? Well, um, that's an interesting question. Um, I think a, a good fund manager is clearly informed, um, does the work, does the reading. Um, a good fund manager is one that embraces fundamentals and is aware of where valuation lies. He's aware or she is aware of the health of not only an equity market valuation, but absolutely knows how the bond market's behaving and how the credit markets are behaving. So he's a well, he or she are a well-rounded, well-informed investor. They're a manager that's, that, that is flexible, that is not stubborn and can be buying one day and then realizing 48 hours later, I need to be selling this thing and I'll take a hit because the market is now telling me I need to be out of this stock. So it's not being stubborn, being completely flexible. It's being informed. Um, it's being commercial. Um, knowing, knowing when something's not working and, uh, and then monetizing a loss so that you don't have a bigger loss. It's knowing how to invoke stop losses. Um, and it's remaining um, in control the whole time, which is not easy. I can tell you, looking after a large pot of money um, and um, I think one of the best I've ever seen at it was Greg Perry, who ran um, uh, Colonial's money through the, uh, through the 90s into the early 2000s. And, and, and he... Um, his nickname was The Freak, and he was a, uh, a very calm customer uh, from the outside, from outside looking in, um, and did a lot of work, I know. Um, anecdotally, I didn't work with him, but I observed him in action, and he maintained enormous positions in a large number of stocks and was able to navigate the markets superbly. That sort of character, where they're balanced, disciplined, um, and stay in control the whole time, they will do well. And you've also got to just have some people are good at the business of making money and investing. And other people are great analysts, um, have great, great, they can do a magnificent 300 line model on a business, but they don't actually know whether the stock should be bought or sold. So good analysts aren't necessarily good money managers. So what, what percentage of your conversations now are with investors trying to appease their nerves versus 
with your analysts and your team looking at new opportunities? Those conversations with anxious clients haven't started. Haven't they? They haven't started. So, um, so we, we're either early in the early in the decline, or they've um, you've taken the decision that um, your money's good with the early Griffiths Group. Yeah, I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. No, I'm being I'm being flippant, Chris. Look, they haven't started. Um, I think uh, it would be reasonable to expect some of our institutional clients, if uh, if we see a follow through through the rest of the week on some selling, may well ring in and 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 want to know and want to know about um, what we're doing and how we're positioned. Um, are we buying and, and so on? So those conversations haven't happened. Thankfully, I mean this business is not about client servicing. Mm. This business is actually managing the money. Mm. It's managing the team and and us staying focused on on the job at hand. So thankfully, all of our discussions um, have been about have been about um, that shopping list we've been meaning to pursue is now actually back in range. Let's go and buy some of these things. It's spending that. 20, 25 cents on the dollar I mentioned earlier. It's it's those conversations. Let's get spending. Let's go. Let's buy some of this stuff carefully. So they've been the conversations we're having. And I think it's interesting to look at which companies are the leaders in the indexes. There's been a period of time where the, the banks were leaders in our markets and international markets. Sometimes it's been materials company. The FANG stocks have really been the leaders of world markets for the last 10 years or so. Mm. Does a, a crash like this potentially change that leadership structure in markets and, and what potential industry do you think could jump into that leadership position if you think there could be a change? Yeah, now that's, a, that's a very, a very um, pertinent observation because it is corrections like this that almost always usher in new leadership. That the leaders of the previous bull run are rarely the leaders of the recovery rally. Um, and it would be if you want to follow the textbook, if you want to follow the market playbook, that after you've had a big correction like this, you might reasonably expect governments and central banks of the world to, to swing in the stimulus as we talked about a minute ago. And that is the perfect precondition for cyclicals to finally get a bid and start going. So you value cyclical type names often recover nicely out of a big sell-off because there are endless and boundless amounts of stimulus and encouragement handed out by authorities and regulators. The, the conditions are set for a recovery of sorts. Um, and and that's, uh, that goes for the United States as much as it goes for China and even here. So you should expect, assuming the route is deeper and we have a genuine, a genuine market give up, meltdown, bear market, um, we're not there yet. But if we generally have that, then you should expect the leaders, the, the leaders to change on the way out. So there'll be, there'll be a different set of stocks will lead the market forward. Our job as active managers is to be mindful of that and to um, keep an open mind. As I mentioned before, a good fund manager, open mind and, um, and, and need to um, you know, make the appropriate portfolio tilts, which is what our job is about. It's tilting into stocks and sectors that we need to be in for the next leg of the market. It's getting that rotation right. But you make a good point. It is uh, market leadership is what our business is about, being on the leaders. And so I've got three short questions we'll finish off with, but before I get to them, have you got any books uh, you recommend to young investors or to your portfolio managers to read to help educate them on markets and, and potentially what's coming? Well, well, often I get, I get um, mates of mine who've got sons and daughters who are interested in the market and I, and I tell them there is no substitute for reading. There is, this, this is an industry that is all about self-help and it's about getting, getting moving and, and, and making a start, opening up an account and so on. And reading is pivotal to that. There are a couple of books I, I would share with you, with, with, with the viewers. First one is Winning on Wall Street by Martin Zweig. 
Uh, Martin's Zweig is one of, will always be one of Wall Street's all-time regarded stock pickers, forecasters and commentators, an extraordinary uh, money manager. And his book, uh, Winning on Wall Street, was a runaway bestseller. You will find it on, you can still buy it. Uh, you, won't, you won't get it uh, on Collins Street. You'll have to go looking for it. It's an outstanding book and should be compulsory reading, I think, for anyone in equity markets. I think Taming the Lion by Richard Farley is another extraordinary book as well. And that's a very straightforward, written in a, in a, in a layperson style, all about managing money from an ex-BT employee back in the 80s who, um, who basically bet his own capital and went on to amass quite a fortune and now lives in Monaco, I believe. His book, Taming the Lion, is an outstanding read. And I think... Um, I think uh, any, any aspiring investors should, uh, should jump on board. And the final one that I was told to buy and I bought the other day is What Works on Wall Street and uh, by James O'Shaughnessy. And so I've, um, I've bought that. It's 460 pages. It's, it's like the Sydney White Pages. Um, it's quite big and small print. Um, I'm going to get started on that. Yeah. So I think that's another book that um, investors or aspiring investors should, should think about. But those three books are a great place to start. And now the last three questions. What was your first ever investment? Ah, well, the first, my first ever investment um, that, I, that I made off my own back, it wasn't relying on broker investments, uh, broker uh, research reports, was um, ANSET Transport Industries. So the old Reg ANSET Transport Group, which of course was ANSET Airlines, which um, um, some viewers will not even recall. Um, ANSET Transport Industries was a diversified transport group, as well as a hotel group and operated home in Ireland. And so I, um, I'd cobbled together um, enough money from my um, milk run that I used to do, and I used to work as a night filler in, at, a, at a corner store. All my savings went into Ansett Transport Industries. I think I paid about $2.20 for them. I think I might've put $1,000 in. I, Chris, I've got to tell you, I'd go to school and come home and then get the, the late copy of the sun and then check the share prices and see how my investment was going. I paid $2.20, give or take. And ANSET Transport Industries became the subject of a takeover bid between TNT, they were trying to buy it. I think Sir Ron Briley with Briley Investments, Industrial Equity were trying to buy it. There was a scramble for this business. The share price went to $4.50. I think eventually got taken out by TNT for four or five dollars and I was able to monetize my, my, my position. And I've got to say that was um, that informed on me greatly. Um, what, a, what a great thing. I, I found this idea. I read the annual report. Um, I actually put some hard-earned in, and I got a and I got a monetization event. So, Ansett Transport Industries, um, great little story, and and um, and and yeah, no, it it really set me on course for for what I'm doing today. Very good. And what advice would you have to an 18-year-old Ben Griffiths investment or or otherwise? Well, as I, as I mentioned, you got to read and read and read some more. Maybe pick up a mentor along the way if if you can find someone to fasten onto and follow. I'm I'm a a firm believer in a young aspiring investor should start accumulating growth assets, good quality growth names, not buying, wasting assets. And I tell my children, be a, be a collector of growth assets, stocks and, and, and properties, but buy growth assets and good quality blue chip names. Uh, forget the car and the, the boat and jet ski, forget all that that comes later. And the final thing I would say to a, a young investor is there's two guiding principles when you're looking to play the stock market. And, and that is always have valuation, the idea of where value sits at any point in time. Are you buying into an overvalued share market or undervalued? Always know where valuation sits. And the other thing too is learn about how credit markets work. 
understand what a credit spread means. Understand the signaling when a credit default swap rallies 20%. What is that saying? Because that is like reading the tea leaves. You can see what a credit market's telling you. It will, it will absolutely inform on what an equity market is going to do. And the two should never be separated. The two, the two are in, 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 the, in the investing public, the two don't even live anywhere near each other. But in the professional space, the two are closely cohabiting. And I'd say learn credit markets and, and, and let, let them guide your equity market investments. And lastly, what's the most common mistake you see retail investors make? Oh, well, getting off, um, getting off a stock too early. I mean, that's, uh, that is a, a, a killer. Um, if you've got a story you like, you're satisfied with the story and you've got a position in place. The, the big money is made in the sitting, not the thinking. Um, my late grandmother used to say that um, in matters of finance, one must be patient. And I think, um, I think it's really getting off a stock too soon without having let it truly display its, um, its upside trajectory. So that is the greatest mistake, is, is, is targeting a price, I'm going to sell it there, and then you, you might have made 20 or 30%, and then you look at it two years later and it's, it's up threefold. So that's the biggest error, is stepping off too soon. Terrific. On that note, I've loved sitting down with It's been great for me to, uh, to pick your brains and, and learn a lot. So I really appreciate your time. Thanks, man. Thanks, Chris. Good on you, mate. Thank you. Cheers. Make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Many chat, but few become. Master of the mark market. market. market.